Coming up on this week's show, Rare's Lost Game Boy Challenger is found. Japan declares war on the floppy disk. And we chat with Michael Case about bringing Metal Gear Solid and Oddworld to the PC. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every single Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should absolutely check out, the unofficial SNES Pixel book, created in collaboration with German publisher Electro Spieler. This lavish 272-page volume celebrates the golden age of 16-bit gaming on Nintendo's popular home console. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit, but you can check out that book and the rest of their retro collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 343, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, of course, the podcast that every week does a fair bit of reminiscing. We get all nostalgic on you, taking you back to the classic age of video games and keeping you up to date on everything that's happening in the retro scene in 2022, which I did have someone tell me the other week, actually, that, you know, it is actually, it's kind of an industry now, isn't it, retro gaming? It is so big. I mean, you walk into... WH Smith and the amount of retro magazines, many of which Ravi's actually involved with, you see on the shelves <laughs> in there these days. It's like, it's just nuts how big well, retro gaming's become. I think it's the big players. The big players have actually taken notice. And when we yeah. first started this podcast, there were there were lots of small companies and there were lots of people doing, you know, small stuff. But like companies like limited run games are huge now. And, you know, you've got the mini consoles coming out and there's been a real change where retro has actually been embraced by the uh, the wider world. And I think it's seen as a bit of a saviour by some companies as well. Like, you know, maybe their current stuff's not doing all that well. It's like, oh, let's celebrate the stuff we used to do back in the day. Everyone's into that stuff again. So that's what we do. We celebrate all that on this podcast every single Friday. And I think my favourite bit of this podcast, as much as I love chatting to you guys, but it's when we get a veteran on to tell their story about their time in the games industry in the second half of the show. And we've got an incredible guest on this week's podcast. Yeah, me and Ravi interviewed uh, Michael Case, um, who actually was the head of Digital Dialect um, back in, well, I say back in the 90s and the 2000s, but we kind of spoke about his whole career as we do, which was really interesting to say the least, wasn't it, Ravi? How he got got into the industry was uh, really quite quite a fun story. And then it also, was, yeah, it was it was a very odd odd uh, entry to the um, industry. You know, these are some of these naughty twenty six hundred games that came out back then. And then uh, <laughs> he he kind of went into a, a really mad route. So he went into like the military. There was um, yeah. some parts about like missiles and stuff like that. But also something I found really interesting, which was um, Androbot, which was a, a machine uh, uh, created as a topo machine, which was basically a, a giant robot. And uh, it was founded uh, in 1983 by a company um, that Nolan Bushnell ran. And hmm. uh, these were like early robots that would kind of, communicate with like barcode scanners and stuff and you'd be able to play with them but um the actual main topo bot was huge and androbot was like a smaller version of this but it was actually called androbot inc and you know we've not really mentioned this before everybody talks about um rob the robot um mm. you know that came out for the nas but it, it was great to hear about that and then later on 
he went into converting games for the uh, PC. And this is stuff like, um, I can never say it, what is it, Battle Arena to Shinden, which was uh, yeah. even released on MS-DOS. And then uh, later on, he went into some of the biggest titles in the PlayStation world, like Oddworld and uh, Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, and it was really thought-provoking. I don't want to ruin it too much. I think I say that whenever I do an interview, but he he went into explaining about how, like, you know, you have to kind of test all these different kind of like, diff- not just test all the different kind of computers, but different kind of setups. And when they mm. did the Metal Gear Solid one, they had like over 400 PC setups to see if they could crash the game and stuff like that, you know, to make sure that it run on everybody's different kind of like potential setup that might be out there, which I thought was really thought provoking. I was like, I've never thought about that before when porting a, P- you know, a console game to PC that there could be, all these thousands of different like graphic cards and setups and stuff like that, that they have to consider that. So it was a really, really interesting discussion. Yeah. You make a game for the PlayStation, you know, everyone's got the exact same hardware. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's a lot of, yeah, it's, it's some of But then so. when, and when you're porting the likes of Metal Gear Solid and Oddworld, you know, the biggest PlayStation games of the time in like 97, 98, and you know, the, you know, the early 2000s and stuff, you got to think like, okay, they're going to sell millions of these games to the PC. They got to make sure it works. So that was really, really interesting. Yeah, you suddenly get people going, my sound's not working. And uh, yeah. that's a lot of refunds to give out, I imagine. Isn't yeah, it? Especially exactly. back then when you all, patch all it. the uh, resolutions as well mm. that you have to go into and, and different effects. Are they going to work on the certain graphics cards and how people are rendering it? It's 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 quite interesting, actually. You know, uh, people with these consoles, you don't know how lucky they are for developers just to have that kind of one set out, um, you know, system that everybody knows. Yeah, so looking forward to this one. Michael Case is going to be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before that, we give you a little roundup of what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And I always like it when we see news stories that follow on nicely from recent interviews that we did. Now, you might remember, we've had him on the show actually a couple of times in the last few months, Paul Makacek from Rare, um, who we were out in Norway with last month doing a few panels and uh, went out for a few drinks with them. Lovely guy. But also we did an episode before that about his work on the Game Boy. And he mentioned to you guys when he did that interview that Rare actually made their own competitor to the Game Boy that was never released back in the day. Um, turns out this thing was uh, titled The Playboy. And funnily enough, a couple of weeks after he did that interview, one of these prototypes has actually surfaced. Yeah, so this was I'd never heard of this before. He has he has actually spoke about it previously on Twitter and uh, with Red Bull um, via Red Bull. He's actually discussed this in 2016. Um, but yeah, long long story short, um, the Raz arcade board, which is what Rare used to make their games, essentially he was kind of like Paul was asked to see if he could get this into a handheld. So he he. Essentially, he managed to do it. You know, go listen to the episode if you want to hear about how he did that and everything. I'm not a technical guy, but he got it into a handheld. And, you know, the way he described the Playboy, um, which he then he then took over to, uh, oh, God, what was the name of the event? It was before E3. What was it? The computer... CES, was it? CES, yeah. He took it to CES. The way he described it, I was expecting like a, an exposed circuit board, like with a screen hanging off it and stuff like that. But it wasn't. It looks really cool, uh, you know, from the news article where it's been surfaced. And essentially, they took it to show to Nintendo, look what we've made. And Nintendo, the story goes, revealed the Game Boy. So he kind of went, oh, well, we won't show them the Playboy then. But yeah, <laughs> it, it went missing. 
for a very long time and it's it's surfaced they've they've found one of the original prototypes um and it's very kindly been put on display at the retro computer museum in leicester which is really cool they haven't said where they found it so i was under the impression that the retro computer museum was just like oh we've got it we found it but it was actually the guys at rare that have found it a guy um, called pete cox apparently yeah Aladdin's pete cox has found yeah. it and um he's also given it's not in working condition um but apparently it was actually Paul goes on to say that, you know, that it was actually, it was very powerful because it was made off an arcade board. It was more powerful than the NES. The graphics were better than the NES. Um, so I would I have a guess that it was better, more powerful than the Game Boy. It ran off six AA batteries. And when how long they would have lasted in like a yeah, miniaturized arcade yeah. board. <laughs> um, it's quite a beefy looking handheld, mm. um, but it does have four buttons rather than the classic, you know, two buttons on the Game Boy, which I think is pretty cool. But yeah, it's not in working condition, but they have given them permission to have a little tinker with it and see if they can get it in working condition. Nice. Um, but currently on display, which I think is really cool. And, you know, it, it's kind of to see that like parallel universe of what we could have had, you know, if the Game Boy didn't come out. I've got to say, I mean, I remember friends of mine, you know, back in the, the 90s when <laughs> combat trousers were pretty popular, weren't they? I remember yeah. having like Game Boys in, you know, the front pockets and stuff like that. This boy looks a bit chunkier. Than a, yeah. than a game, but I've got to say the Playboy looks like it probably wouldn't fit in your in your pocket. In your combat trousers, <laughs> yeah, it's it's got like a bit of a curve to it. It's like yeah. imagine the Game Boy, but then it's like it's the size of the Game Boy, kind of like the hot, you know, where the the buttons are, but then the screen is kind of like on a curve on top of it, isn't it? It looks to me like it's made to play on a table, you know, kind of the angle mm. of the screen looking up at you. Because if you're holding it, actually the screen's kind of pointing down at your chest, isn't it? Yeah, you would kind of have to hold it kind of like flat and then the screen Mm. would like look up at you wouldn't it um which is quite an interesting design but you know i think it looks considering it's a prototype i think it looks quite complete yeah and you've got a start and select button on there you've got like a d-pad and two two fire buttons by the looks Mm. of it i i think it's great that um you know it's at the retro computer museum Mm. that's that i couldn't think of a better place for it oh yeah um fixed and repaired you know they've got the uh, cd 1200 there that they need to fix now (laughs) they've got the playboy as well so um Andy Davidson and, and the crew, uh, they're absolutely awesome because I, I think if it went to other museums or it went to places, it would probably be behind a glass cabinet. It probably is now, but, you know, you talk to Andy and the guys and they'll take it out and like let you have a look and stuff. And uh, that's what I kind of love about that place. It's it's really good. You should visit it. It's essentially like a, a giant kid's bedroom. That's how I've always <laughs> seen the uh, Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. Yeah, we haven't been over for a while, I think. Yeah, definitely a visit is uh, is due before the end of the year. Um, and if you get yourself along to the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, you can get a look at Rare's lost prototype. They're a challenger to the Game Boy, um, the Playboy. <laughs> I couldn't imagine many parents being pleased with their kids owning something called that, though. You need to go in and say, can I have a look at your Playboy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, this is very cool. Now, I must admit, I've always liked the idea of playing flight simulators. I just think I'm a bit too... Um, I was going to say a bit too thick. Maybe that is the case. I haven't got the attention span to learn a flight simulator. And I was always that way as a kid. I mean, I remember, obviously, Microprose, they were kind of the king, particularly on the Amiga and the PC, of flight sims. And I remember getting cover disc demos of stuff like F-19 Stealth Fighter and F-15 Strike Eagle. And, you know, occasionally I'd maybe I'd jab away at the keyboard and figure out how to take off. And that was probably about as far as they ever got with them. But it turns out now that Microprose are actually kind of going back to roots. And they're bringing out a new game, which is called um, Tiny Combat Arena. And this is a throwback to those flight sims that they made back in the 90s, by the looks of it. 
Well, you guys uh, interviewed Wild Bill Steely on this. Oh, and, yeah. You know, he came from that uh, military flight background, and you know, he he had some great stories of uh, the past and like flight simulators. And you're right, Microprose they released some absolutely awesome ones. Uh, Gunship and Gunship 2000 were ones that I remember. This game looks really interesting, actually, because thinking about it, you know, flight simulators when they get re-released and stuff nowadays. They're higher-res graphics. Like Microsoft Flight Simulator is is just amazing graphics, and uh, it's really done up and stuff. This is and actually massive. a massive, yeah. This is actually done in a in a retro style, and a real. I must say, the look of it looks really like Microprose, but they've got that kind of modern crispness to it, and you know, like shader detail. Dave, and- it, it's it's the retro look, but it's a lot of these modern retro looking games are doing this style at the moment what's that goose game called it's called literally just like goose game i can't remember what it's called yeah, yeah that's <laughs> untitled, it. Goose, game, <laughs> untitled yeah. goose game that's it like it's got the same look as that that's what it reminds me of obviously it plays completely different it's not the game itself is nothing like it but that really simplistic like stylized re- stylized yeah. graphics and you know it looks a lot more approachable well these these are the graphics we're used to but the frames per second we're not used to. Like, I used to remember playing a lot of flight simulators on the Amiga. I'd have to stop at points because I'd feel sick because of the frame rate. You know, some would be really low. And, like, just simulating a fight or doing dogfighting and stuff in there was really tough. Um, but this, this looks absolutely awesome. And uh, I can't wait to kind of pick it up and play it at a decent frame rate finally. I think it's cool as well, the fact that you've got those kind of old school graphics, but obviously it's going to be, I imagine, you know, 1080p at least, or maybe even 4K, um, looking at it. And I, I always like the idea of flight sims. I mean, when I was a kid, I was really into planes. You know, I used to, I still quite like, you know, quite find that aviation quite interesting. But I remember when I was like seven, eight years old, I really wanted to be a plane pilot. And I think, you know, I've always liked the idea of playing flight sims, but <laughs> it's, yeah, they're just, I don't know. Just seem a bit too complicated sometimes for their own good. You know, when you when you used to get them back in the day, I had friends that were into flight sims and they'd open the game box and it'd be like a copy of the yellow pages falling out, the manual. I'd look at it, I'd be like, oh, mm. I'll go back to play Sonic for a bit. Well, I kind of <laughs> like, like the idea of sitting in a huge flight simulator, you know, uh, which is accurate with the displays and stuff like that. That mm. would be quite cool. I used to remember going to a like the fair, and there'd be these giant simulators that you get in and uh, sit on and stuff. That that was a thing in the 90s. You don't see them nowadays, do you? Like a huge simulator, and it would like go up and down and chuck oh, you yeah. around. Well, they stuff. used to make yeah. me feel sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After like six of the uh, those sugar donuts and, and a bag of candy floss going in there. That's about to say a bag of candy floss as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I think, I think this looks awesome. And like this is one for the real kind of, accurate flight simulator peeps um you know it's got like a, a database with statistics and uh you know it has the aircraft vehicles and weapons and like all the different approaches to a tactical situation and stuff and these games have always been about really learning it and getting into it and i could imagine if you're a, a pilot this might be even fun to do his <laughs> spare time off you know yeah you, you work 12 hours in the air then come over and play this all night 
Well, you can't go around shooting everyone, can you? <laughs> so. And it's affordable as well. It's only going to be £15.49. So you can uh, you can pre-order that on Steam right now. Um, it does look very good, actually. I think, you know, if you're a fan of those um, microprose games back in the day, this is going to be very nostalgic. And I think if you loved all those classic flight sims, it's going to be something you're going to find really interesting. I, I was expecting price. them to come out with, like, you know, something a bit bigger and something a bit wower. But actually, I quite like this because it's directly on their roots. It it looks like an indie game. It's cheap. You know, that's a good way to start and build up from that, you know, with Microprose coming back. I think I think that's a really good way to do it and to look back and, and, and especially have that look and feel of the older games. You know, don't just come out there with a huge new, right, this is the new Microprose and, you know, uh, ridiculous graphics and uh, not much kind of thought to it. This is this is a well thought out release. Now, we've been reading about all these headlines and about you guys. I keep seeing um, artificial intelligence image generators and making the headlines everywhere at the moment. And we've been playing around with, you know, services like uh, Dali, stuff like that. Um, I even heard a headline the other day that there's been this big art contest and actually the winning image, it turned out, was AI generated. And a yeah, lot of people I have been saw that. Of- caused a lot of controversy. And there's yeah. also this um, out of image thing now, which is really weird, which is you have an image. And then the AI, like you know, Mona Lisa or or, or a classic painting, will will draw what's going on outside of that image. So we'll kind of continue the room and the landscape based on the image, which is just oh, weird. It's it's getting scarily intelligent, isn't it? AI. Like before, we were all like oh, AI, it's all right, but now it can start <laughs> to do images and stuff. It's like oh wow, it's got a mind. I, for one, welcome our new artistic overlords, Um, especially if they're doing (laughs) stuff like this, because it turns out that, you know, while all these other AI services are trying to get, you know, photorealism, this one's really cool. Image to Image is actually doing MS-DOS-style pixel art. Yeah, this is is one that I've not seen before, and um, it's it's called Image to Image, so it takes an input image, and uh, it applies with a text prompt. You know, I've, I've... I've used Dali, Mini Dali, where you type in a text prompt. I think mine was Limp Biscuit Wedding, and that was quite funny. Um, but there was another we one. Had Elon Musk eating crayons, I remember you did as well. Yeah, Darth Vader in the bathtub as well. That was another one. Um, but this one seems to take like an image source and then combine it with another one as well and use the text prompts. But they've been doing it with some classic MS-DOS images and... Uh, it's like portraits of Duke Nukem, uh, Secret of Monkey Island, King's Quest, Star Control, and uh, that you know there's a bit of editing and a bit of changes going on in this, but they look like real versions of of, of the actual games. And so I've got this the wrong way around. Originally, I thought this was it was making MS DOS style images, but it's not. It's actually turning old school pixel art into photorealistic images. Then. Yes, yes I, yeah. right. Got I, I, I thought when Ravi first sent this over, it was people just reenacting it. I was like, that's hardly a new story. Like, because <laughs> no, it looks no, that no. good. But, but it no, does it looks that good. Yeah, it, it looks that good. It's, it's, it's insane. I, I, I do find it interesting that, like, um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know what the game is, but the kid holding the laser cannon. It uh, does That's uh, Commander Keen. It doesn't quite know what a laser cannon is, so it looks like it's given him like some photography equipment, <laughs> which I think is really funny. I thought it was a drinking flask. <laughs> well, Maybe well, some this, sort of drinking uh, flask. This seems to be more of a high-end one. So um, Image oh, yeah. to Image has been used recently. There's a Reddit thread on it to upgrade children's drawings. 
So, <laughs> you know, children's drawings and then doing like a high-end, uh, like photorealistic version of, of what that would become. I can imagine there's going to be some scary versions of this. And like, you look at that Commander Keen image here and, and the kid looks a bit weird, doesn't he? He looks, he looks a bit Benjamin Button, kind of like an adult adult um, child yeah it's 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 uh interesting but it is quite shocking how how good it gets and uh it definitely can have a scary future but just imagine what games uh, you'd like to see recreated photo realistically in ai there are some that i wouldn't want to see i mean what about stuff like um the witch of granny's garden still the scariest the scariest video game character or like nemesis from like Resident Zool. Evil. Imagine what Zool yeah. would look like. Or one of the worms. Oh, that would be weird. <laughs> the aliens from Alien. How would it make those look in like photo Oh, God. Realism? Yeah, yeah. That, that I, would be I just feel like you're saying all these things and I'm like, well, it, it, worms would look like a worm, I imagine. <laughs> and then, like, I'm like, the aliens would look like the ones from the films. I don't know. But yeah, um, I can't get like the Duke Nukem one, how how good that one looks. Mm. That, that one's like mind boggling. Like it is scary. You it's know. when they can get to the stage where, and, and I've seen people arguing over this, because I think there was actually um, a big like newspaper actually couldn't get an image of somebody. So it used like Dali, the AI service, to actually make its, um, its image for the, art, for the article. Oh, wow. And a lot of people have been kicking off and it's putting photographers out of business, that kind of thing. I'm looking here, you know, that, that Duke Nukem one, for example, where he looks like a real person, maybe mm-hmm. in like 10 years when or maybe even sooner, you know, if it can animate these, then you could potentially make kind of a full movie. Oh, and do, yeah, you can that's, move that's, that's the deep fakes, and that's where it yeah. all starts to get kind of scary. Like, you know, you could just get the the, the guys from the retro hour and, uh, you know, put <laughs> us in a video game. Or <laughs> really weird, yeah. Um, I'm not going to encourage that. <laughs> well, they got here, I mean, there's Guybrush 3 put in a lane from Monkey Island, and that's turned into a real image and. Yeah, I'm looking at that and I think, you know, you could at least do maybe a kind of a 10-minute short story using those characters yeah. to animate them properly. And I see it come up all the time on, like, Facebook and stuff like that. There's one today. Um, I got an advert from a woman, you know, who's like just looked like a sales pitch. Then she mentioned that she doesn't exist. She's like an AI-generated character. Then it turns into, like, a wireframe. But it looks photorealistic. So it's like, you know, for, for the movie industry and even video games – you know, that they can make games using this technology. I imagine it, you know, there, they've got to be a lot of artists out there who are probably a bit angry at this and a bit worried, I imagine. Maybe, yeah. Like, imagine how easy it would be to do, like, a photorealistic reboot of, like, a, an old title. Mm. <laughs> Just get something and then all process it. Like, we've we've even seen the guy who's redoing Hit and Run at the moment with, um, you know, upscaling some of the graphics as well just on the fly and that's just one guy doing it on his own i can't imagine what uh, a film industry professional or, or someone would be able to do you know uh, i can't wait to see syndicate done in <laughs> well it'd be like you know, you know when toy story came out and that was like a benchmark for being the first cgi completely generated movie the fact that you know two or three decades later we're getting stuff like this although i am looking the more i look at that command king picture the last one of the article the more i'm thinking this was a mistake this technology shouldn't have been invented that is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of <laughs> horrifying. You see what I mean with Benjamin Button? It kind of looks, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting, though, that you can turn your own old pixel art games into photorealistic images. So if you want to read more about that, I'll uh, link up the article on Ars Technica in our show notes and everything else we talk about, you'll find it in there. Now, Japan have declared war 
on the floppy disk. And there is a new version of the Evercade coming out. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, though, of course, we have a patron that really helps us out. And the reason that you might want to back us on Patreon is obviously to keep this podcast coming out every week. But also, we give you some nice little perks in return. Which Joe will detail now. I was going to say, is is this where I chime in? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I always say this, but we, we, we massively, massively appreciate the fact that people essentially kept the retro hour going through the lockdown, you know, all those years ago now, feels like so many years ago, but not only kept it going and was able for us to, you know, do our home studios and, and work separately and stuff like that have, have kept it going as well and then kept it independent um and obviously you don't just keep the retro hour going we do like to give back we we, we do the show ad free um you get access to our discord uh, but my favorite part is also access to our after hours uh, extra podcast where we we do all sorts on that we've been reviewing video game years we've been doing our top five consoles and top five games particular consoles and we also do some reviews from our own point of views as well which is we've just done uh, one where we actually reviewed some games that um, people suggested to us in discord and then my absolute favorite as well is we do do the end of the month hangout where people can come along and hang out with us um, I was going to say over the phone then, that's really retro. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that, like a, a retro conference, oh, like chat conference line, yeah. call. Is everybody on the call? Um, no, we do that online, which is like a real virtual users group where we all just get together and we have a drink. And it's just, you know, I always say it to my wife, like when, when we do the when we do the retro hangout, I'm like, you know, I'm on with, I'm on with the crew, you know. But yeah, no, I absolutely love it. And it still blows my mind that, you know, we're seven years in to the retro hour now almost. Mm. And we've been doing the Patreon for a couple of years, you know, just before lockdown happened. And the fact that people support us in that way. Especially just, at the moment, I think, because we know yeah. that, you know, costs are going up and everything. And, uh, you know, we appreciate whether not everyone can support us on Patreon. But, for, you know, if you can find it, it just, you know, it can be as low as like, I think our lowest one's like $3 a month. And it does make a huge difference. It just means mm. that we can keep putting the show out every week. So, I mean, I don't want to go into the, the amount of work we do on it, but I mean, doing this podcast... It can be a full-time job sometimes. And, you know, we've we've done it every week now for seven years and we'd like to do it for another seven. Um, and your, your support really makes that possible. And, of course, like Joe said, I mean, you get the normal episode early most weeks. You get it ad-free. We do about 15 minutes of extra news stories for our patrons on yep. an exclusive edition each week as well. So if you want to get access to all that and join us for this month's Hangout that is coming up in a couple of weeks' time, all the details to back us on Patreon, you'll find it at theretrohour.com. And, of course, for joining the Retro Hour Patreon community, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame! (laughs) And I'll let Joe give a shout to our latest patron. A massive, massive, massive thank you to Luke Chalice. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining the community. And if you'd like to do the same, everything you need to know to get involved in our patron is at theretrohour.com. Right then, our special interview with Michael Case coming up on the show in just a minute. I've got to admit, you know, I love my Nintendo Switch as a handheld system. When I'm not playing that, though, my other favourite handheld would probably be my Evercade. You guys played on an Evercade before? I very briefly played your Evercade last Mm. time I came over, which was a while ago now. Um, I think it was around this time last year. I've never played one before, but I'm I'm actually amazed with how successful it's been. And, uh, you know, they, they spotted a gap in the market, which was people mm. wanting these kind of pre-compiled uh, collections that are really cool. Instead of having these endless lists of doom scrolling through ROMs, you know, um, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I and I think they've done really well actually. I, I know loads of people with Evergates that just absolutely love them and uh, get into that kind of collector vibe with it as well. Yeah, you're right because I mean you actually get physical cartridges on them, um, and there are some great packs. I've got like you know the Codemasters collection, the Atari Lynx collection, the Namco Museum, um, Bitmap Brothers one I think I've got as well. And and it's really nice. It reminds me because they're offline systems. They're nice and portable. They remind me of playing like a. You know what you imagine in in your memory, playing a Lynx or a Game Gear was like. Only you know when you go back to the Lynx and it you reminds, the display. It reminds me, you know, when I was a kid and you go to like Spain or whatever, you'd see these like fifty in one cartridges for the Game yeah. Boy, and they never worked properly. And you know there wasn't actually fifty games on it. There'd be like five games just repeated. Just on it. repeated. Yeah. They remind me of what I wished they were when I was a yeah. kid. Like they are actually them. They work you know, that the actual games working properly on a really nice, you know, handheld device. Um, but there's an even nicer one coming out, isn't there, Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they released the Evercade VS or the Evercade Versus mm. um, back a, back in the last year, I think it was. Um, yeah. We talked about that. That was kind of the physical console that you hook up and to that, your TV. That was two-player, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah. The, yeah the first one first. we could have two-players. Yeah. But kind of, you know, in the vein of what Nintendo did with the Switch and upgrading it to a nicer screen and everything, they've actually got a new version of this called the Evercade EXP. Now, this mm. gives you a uh, a nice high-resolution IPS screen. I love the fact that it's in um, 4.3 format as well, you know, because a lot of the classic games were. But also, it's got a thing called um, Tate mode in there as well, because there are some really nice shooters on here on the Evercade. And obviously a lot of those kind of classic shooting mob games, they had vertical displays in the arcade, didn't they? Yeah. So actually you can rotate it 90 degrees and play them vertically on the that, screen. That reminds me of the Lynx, like that kind yeah, of thing. I yeah, thought, play like I thought that. of the Lynx as well, but that, I think that's really cool. I think the IPS screen's really important actually because, you know, being able to view it from all angles, um, especially if it's a portable one and, you you know, you're playing it in some playing in some odd position or something you know I, th- I think that's really good to actually have that and OLED if it was OLED it would be very expensive wouldn't it so um I can understand doing it in the uh IPS vibes I think IPS is you know for a screen that size it's only 4.3 inches I think you know that's more than good enough for that for sure um yeah. and it's got stuff you expect on there today USB-C um built-in Wi-Fi to it as well although this is actually the first Evercade that they've preloaded games onto the actual device as well. Oh, so yeah, um, okay. every Evercade EXP is going to be preloaded with 18 classic Capcom games as well. Um, and this is actually the first time that these Capcom games have been fe- featured on the Evercade. Yeah. Um, and there are some incredible ones on here as well. 18 of their best arcade titles. Yeah, this I thought this was really cool. So they haven't done, there hasn't been any Capcom games whatsoever on the mm. Evercade yet. They haven't done a, a Capcom cartridge or anything like that. Um, so like you say, there's 18 games on this and it's 14 arcade versions. So you get 14 arcade games and then you get four console games. So the four console games are Mega Man, Mega Man 2, Mega Man X and Breath of Fire, which I think are really, really, really solid games. Um, and then the arcade games that you get, which will probably be taking advantage of that tape mode, is 1942, 1943, 1944. They're great games, but so really, hard. really good games. Yeah, very hard though. Um, it's a good job you get unlimited credits on these things usually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but some some really awesome games on there. You got Bionic Commando, Cap, um, Captain Commando as well. Commando, one of my favourites. Final Fight, 
Forgotten Worlds, Ghouls and Ghosts. Hopefully, speaking of needing continues. Yeah, I was going to say speaking of needing continues. Hopefully, they're unlimited in there. Uh, Legendary Wings, Mercs, Street Fighter Two, Hyper Fighting, uh, Strider, and what was Hulk. Hyper Fighting? Was that but Turbo? That was, that was the the. I'm pretty sure that was the last Street Fighter Two arcade game that came out. It came out at the back end of 1994, right. and it was the one. It was made on. I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure it was made on the newer arcade board. And it was the one where it was like, it had all the bosses, all the extra characters, you know, like T-Hawk and DJ. And then it had the nicer sprites and it was the turbo, like turbo free. It could go up to yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like the final version, the definitive version of Street Fighter 2, Hyper Fighting Yeah, was. it's on the um, the 30th anniversary collection as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you get Strider and uh, Volgus on there as well um so really really solid library there and the fact that it comes built in i think is absolutely fantastic um pre-orders started this week um and we're expecting it on november 24th 2022 just in time and, and i think the, the price point's quite good as well um so it's at the moment it's 129.99 uh, uk yeah. and that's a little bit cheaper than the switch Lite, actually yeah, it's 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 pretty decent. I like the like I said, uh, like you said, I like the idea of it having built-in games because mm. you know you can have those built-in ones. Then you can get your cart and put it on top of that and like change around stuff. And also, you know me, uh, I think it probably will open the world of uh, hackability as well. Yeah, okay, <laughs> First thing Ravi thinks about whenever we yeah, see any cross hack this thing. Um, yeah, very cool. Then it just again, I mean, it's it's we, we've done episodes about the Evercade before. And it's just a platform and a company that, you know, just really love this stuff and they put a lot of love and effort into it. And you can really tell. I mean, it just oozes quality and, you know, the fact that they, they're continuing to make it. And they can survive, you know, a company that are dedicated to making these incredible retro collections that have been going now for a good few years and people love the hardware. So I think it's very cool. So it's nice to see them uh, getting new revisions and new hardware coming out from the Evercade crew. Um, pre-orders for that available now. And I'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you've been to Japan, Joe, and I'd like to think that Japan is uh, generally regarded as a country that's very forward-looking and technologically advanced. Y- yeah, it was. It was like a completely different world. It was like, it was the future. Robots like walk in the streets. Yeah, know. yeah. I felt like I'd stepped into the future, but I feel like I know where you're going with this. So I met up with my with a friend who lives in Japan. He's got his own bar and stuff. And when we met up with him, my wife pointed out when we were going around a lot of the markets that there was a lot of like landline phones and like like fax machines and stuff, like shops mm. repairing them, like fax fax machine repair shops and old house phone repair shops and stuff. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, he said, although Japan are really futuristic, they're very savvy in the fact that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm. And in that regards, they continue to use a lot of old technology or they will just keep using something, you know, until it does finally give up the ghost. You know, people will have a fax machine and everybody will still fax each other or a family will have a house phone and rather than buying a new one or just using their mobile phones, they will get it repaired because people still use landlines. So although it was really futuristic, there's that kind of like recyclable like recyclable lifestyle is there as well. But I'm not too sure about this next... Well, then you turn off their pages service, apparently, in 2019. Yeah, yeah. So, um, But I'm not too sure where they're going with the old floppy disks here. So tell it's, me about this. <laughs> it, to me, this seems like a governmental thing. So 
they've they've declared war on obsolete media. But before we read this story, we need to talk about one other, which is a uh, Japan's cybersecurity minister. Um, this was in 2018. Announced he'd never used a computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you qualified know. for the job. Yeah, exactly. And he said, "Oh, that won't that won't affect any of the positions." So I think this is maybe uh, a kind of thing coming down from uninformed people in the top. But um, they're basically saying that they they're declaring war on old media, which includes CD. Uh, one which really frustrates me, mini discs. Oh, you love your mini discs. So, so essentially, going completely against everything I just said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and floppy discs. Yeah. Well, this is a new appointment. A guy called them um, Taro Kono, who's uh, been um, appointed as Japan's digital minister. Um, and this story was submitted on our Discord. Thank you, Destroy007, who sent this over. And it turns out that apparently there are still around almost two thousand government procedures that still mean they have to use storage medium like floppy disk to do it on because of bureaucracy, really. Mm. And I would guess there might be a bit of security in there as well that maybe they kind of fear doing some of this stuff on internet-connected devices. But it turns out now um, a lot of floppy disks are still in use in Japan. But they're saying that they want to kind of drag countries' bureaucrats into the 21st century and finally abolish them by the looks of it. It, it's, It's scary because... I think there's a really big argument about having computers that are running stuff like infrastructure, nuclear missiles, you know, stuff like that offline and Mm. having no connection with it. Um, Maybe not have them running on floppy disks, but uh, CDs at least uh, would be a good idea for backing up. Or or They don't mention DVDs and stuff, so maybe maybe they're uh, all right with that but um it also seems like uh, there was a case where two ministers left uh, uh two, two members of Tokyo police force uh, lost two floppy disks containing information on uh, 38 housing applicants um so i think the problem is with the Tokyo police force not with the uh, format <laughs> yeah. there and, and it might be kind of taking the blame for uh, uh the, the mad stuff that's happened. But, um, I mean, in yeah. 2022, it's easy. I mean, every government in the world has got their own kind of private cloud storage where they do stuff on that, you know, is not accessible from the outside and double or two-factor authentication, all that kind of stuff. It's just surprising that in, in Japan, I imagine these rules were probably written decades ago and they've just never updated them. Yeah, well, we, we covered a, a story which was... Um, in uh, 2014, which was about uh, floppy disks not being used at the uh, stop being used at the um, uh, military facility in uh, for nuclear weapons in America yeah. for nuclear weapons, but these weren't like you know 3.5 inch floppies. These were the old floppies, the big ones. ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that and that was from the 70s. You know, kind of leftover stuff from that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I I said in a comment on this on um, uh, RMC actually it shared it as well, and I said we should make uh, ninja stars out of the floppies and uh, fight back, <laughs> make sure that they're they're kind of uh, reinstated. And uh, if they're getting rid of mini discs, send them all to me, please. Um, yeah, <laughs> Ravi, actually, you've stopped using your phone for like spotify and that you've actually gone old school again this week. I've, mate I've, I've gone down the mini disc rabbit hole so um like spotify and stuff all the music was limited and uh i've I got my old mini disc player out and one battery will last me like 
54 hours of continuous play from one double a and uh you know it's it's quite good quality i've been going around listening to my mini disc it's quite big of course uh i've got netmd working and i've gone on with all these mini disc like groups on facebook and people are like really into it i saw a guy like head to toe in mini disc branded clothes and stuff so uh yeah another rabbit hole for me to go down so next time we see you, you're going to be wearing a a mini mini disc shell suit or something. I'm going to record the retro hour on a mini disc. That's <laughs> the way to go. So uh, I mean, that is one thing about Japan kind of declaring the end of floppy disks. I imagine that that might mean it could go either way. Maybe there's going to be a lot more floppy disks kind of available because I know that Sony stopped making them, didn't they? Around we covered it on the on the news in an early episode around 2016. I want to say, yeah, maybe the government's um, been hoarding loads yeah. of floppy disks <laughs> and they'll get released new old stock. Or maybe they're going to have a mass old media burning. Uh, oh yeah, that's the thing. They'll throw them that all out. That would be awful, they? wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a good. It wouldn't be good for security if they suddenly put them all on eBay. I imagine with all the government <laughs> yeah. on there. So uh, yeah, I'm just a bit a bit optimistic there. But there you go. Rest in peace to the floppy disk in Japan. Now, before we get into our chat with this week's very special guest, Michael Case is coming up in just a moment. Let's give some love to our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, we love Bitmap Books and they have supported the Retro Owl for many years now. We love Sam and the team there. And one of their books, actually, I'm a huge fan of. I love their their pixel books that they do. Now, this one is called the, uh, the SNES or the SNES Pixel Book. And this is a celebration over 272 pages of the golden age of 16-bit Nintendo gaming. And we've all got Bitmap Books books in our collections, and they're just a work of art, aren't they? They're gorgeous. Like, I, I love the sleeves that they have in there as well, but also like the quality of the screenshots and the prints are just unbelievable in Bitmap Books games. I, I really love them. They're an ideal accompaniment to have uh, if you just, you know, sipping a tea or having your coffee and you just want to check out some of the older systems and the amount of work that goes into these as well as i mean obviously you know the super nintendo had a massive portfolio of games on there and they've got tens of thousands of screenshots not just generic ones though ones that were specifically taken they've been composed and you know how nice they make the screenshots look on the pages too and it covers you know some incredible games on there including obscure things the big classics that you played back in the day street fighter 2 super mario world super castlevania 4 axe play all on here as well they put them all into genre and there's also as well as the images you get really thoughtful and fascinating insights into the design of the games as well and also how they impacted modern gaming too so if you want to get hold of this book it is a must read for super nintendo fans and you can get it right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming books all the details are on their website at bitmapbooks.com now while we're talking about good reading material can I just give a quick mention as well to um ryan berger who's a longtime supporter of the retro hour you might have heard about old school gamer magazine which was um, it's been a free magazine that he's been doing for about five years with a free issue and that you can download every couple of months to bring it out, but they do a paid-for version as well. And actually, he's got a Kickstarter running at the moment because they really want to take this incredible multi-plat retro gaming magazine to the next level. So if you want to support that, Old School Gamer magazine is the final weekend of that running on Kickstarter. So you'll have to be quick if you want to jump on that, but I'll put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Good luck with that, Ryan and the crew. Right next, we're going to be getting some stories about classics like Metal Gear Solid and Odd World and bringing those games to the PC with our special guest, Michael Case, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour and we're chatting to Michael Case about porting PlayStation games. 
to the PC. Now, Michael, how you doing? Um, doing great. So, so what got you into programming then, and and what were the kind of influential games that you played? What got me into programming? Um, let's see. Uh, I guess uh, man, I don't know if he was from the CIA or from wherever, who came into my classroom when I was in junior high school and told me that computer programmers going to be the highest, um, what's going to, uh, being a computer programmer was going to be the highest paid profession in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally the way he put it. I was like, uh, sign me up. And uh, they had a, I guess it would basically be described as a teletype computer at our school in junior high. This was, I would say, 1973 and way back. And um, basically, we were connected to one computer, um, which is uh, PDP-11, I think, was Mm. the word for it. And we would uh, disconnect to it via t- teletype. And um, the, f- the first game that I programmed was a Star Trek game, which uh, basically was a bunch of dots. It was printed out in kind of like a, a dot matrix. Uh, and uh, they would show the Star Trek uh, ship and, as well as a Klingon ship. And you would try to kill the Klingon ship. And the Klingon ship was basically, you know, some letter on the keyboard <laughs> <laughs> represented by that. And, uh, the starship was, uh, represented by another letter and, uh, the computer game was stored on a uh, paper tape, which was printed out. That's something on the side of the uh, teletype. And, um, we, um, quickly figured out how to, um, hack that. So, um, we, um, put a little uh, fake hanging piece of tape out of the side so when the teacher uh, logged us in, she wouldn't realize that we'd redirected the paper tape that was being printed by her logging in to go below that, basically, um, out of the side (laughs) so she wouldn't see it. We then uh, took that uh, piece of paper and decoded it and got all the log, got the login for our school and traded that with the other schools <laughs> uh, in our local district. And uh, by doing that, we connected with some people at USC and, you know, another, a bunch of other people at other universities. And they were all hackers at that point. They all had, uh, like one guy we, uh, we met uh, had like, 30 it seemed like 30 phones in his dorm room and he was u- using them all to you know do hacking on you know various computers i don't know if he was you know hacking <laughs> the you know government agencies or whatever but at any rate we um exchanged you know our passwords that we had found out you know and we were children who were, you know, at, th- at that point, I'd say 16. And we got access to the USC computers. And then we went down there and with our accounts, we're able to, um, you know, access uh, more powerful computers, etc. You know, so that's how I got into computer programming, to make a long story short, or to make a short story sh- long. <laughs> <laughs> well, did that then kind of lead to you studying it more and um, 
getting a wider understanding of computing. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I entered a computer competition at USC and um, University of Southern California. I, I won the competition, even though I wasn't a student at the University of Southern California. <laughs> just a high school kid, you know, so. And uh, did you kind of think this this could be, uh, did you believe the guy and think this could be a viable career for the future? Or um, were, you, were you just kind of playing around then? Well, I just found I was good at it. And, um, you know, why not? <laughs> it's just going to be a viable uh, occupation, certainly. So uh, we read that you got your start with a company called Multivision, who were a adult games company. <laughs> Did oh, any of the games sell well? <laughs> Did any of the games sell well? And what's the story there? No, the games never sold. They never went to market. Okay. Um, okay, the story, oh boy, geez. Oh, uh, that's a really long story. Well, I'll, I'll try to make it short. Okay, so basically, I um, the, the let's let's just talk about the company first. Yeah, um, the company was started by a guy Eugene Finke, who um, was an adult photographer that had uh, worked for a variety of magazines like Playboy, etc. Mm. Um, you know, basically photographing nude women, and <laughs> he had that entree into the um, adult market so he um used that to convince a guy who was a god i'm trying to remember what his he was a physician i think a dermatologist i'm gonna say to give him some seed money um to try to do a video game because video games were the hottest thing at that point that was during the point of the atari 2600s you know the atari 2600 of course yeah, you guys yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that the, the, the height of its uh, career, you could say. And um, he had this um, full plan for a media campaign, et cetera. This was, I, I guess, basically um, uh, sold by Eugene uh, to this uh, dermatologist because uh, Custer's Revenge was a game that was being done at that point. I'm sure everybody knows about Custer's Revenge. Yeah. And so uh, he wanted to make more classy adult games, you know, appealing more to men and women. I, at, at that point, there, there was no way to program the Atari 2600. There was no instruction manual. I basically had to re reverse engineer, excuse me, the entire platform from scratch. Um, I made a wireboard um, for a Apple II that, that would... Um, allow me to connect to it and um, basically figured out all the instructions just by trial and error. Because at that point, Nintendo completely controlled um, that market and uh, they would give their information to nobody but the people that uh, were doing authorized games. I, yeah, I guess the kind of they didn't really want adult developers on the system probably, so they wouldn't provide you with any information oh, or any uh, development material. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that was completely antithetical to their market. They came up with this idea of a, an adult game that would... Um, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny, actually. Um, it was supposed to uh, you know, be um, kind of classy because you would interact with female characters and um, pleasure them by uh, moving your r remote control joystick 
in rhythm with the movement of their hips. So you had to kind of like rock your joystick. <laughs> if you can imagine that. Yeah. To the, the movement on the screen. Um, so um, anyway, and then once you uh, got by one and, uh, but you couldn't stay there too long because, you know, everyone had um, a danger involved with them. Uh, one was uh, succumbing to passion uh, the husband comes home kind of thing, you know, there was another one was a snake pit. Uh, he fell into a snake pit. and anyway, they, they, um, they were very um, kind of weird, those titles for the 2600. I I remember a soft porn adventure was one um, from Sierra as well that was out at the time. And it was a, really, it was a re- I, I, it was for the Atari eight bits, which was uh well, they were called online system at the time. Uh, mm. But yeah, it is a, there were some really weird like themes and stuff in there, like snake pits and husbands chasing you. Yeah. Oh yeah. There were, yeah. Yeah. The, um, the snake pit one. Uh, what was that? That was a very famous game. Uh, can't remember the title. Um, but uh, that was the first one that has sound that had, had a real good theme of sound background. They, they figured out how to do that because basically on the 2600, the big problem was you had like uh, one oscillator. Just, you know, it was like a, a mono synthesizer. So you had like one note <laughs> you could basically play at a time. And they figured out how to uh, modulate it in such a way that you could um, create a theme, basically. You know, uh, change it every, uh, once every 40,000, one forty thousandth of a second, I guess you can call it, you know, to uh, create a theme. Yeah, uh, Activision did that game. Uh, What's that game called? It was, I think, it was an Indiana Jones game. Um, that was a big breakthrough on the twenty six hundred. Um, yeah, and um, at any rate, d- I don't know how much more you want me to say about the adult game, but uh, that just quickly degenerated into a situation where um, the the principals involved in the company wanted to kill each other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically, the guy Eugene Finke, um, uh did. You know, just spent a ton of money um, in photo shoots that were in Playgirl magazine, et cetera. Yeah. He had a car phone at that point, which was like a big deal. That was before cell phones. And so they had car phones. And um, he basically blew all this guy's money. And yeah. I didn't have any money left. And, you know, it was like, we, how are we going to release this game? Atari won't let us release it. And, you know, we're, and then there was this one. CES, that was back when, uh, before E3, when yeah. all the games were released at uh, CES. At the CES show, there was an attempt to steal the source code of the game from <laughs> my room, literally. Oh, wow. By um, the other principal in the company. And my apartment had been broken into to try to steal it because I was the only person who had the source code. It, it, it just got completely crazy. And then our you know, the um, messed around with Eugene's car and broke down in the middle of the Las Vegas desert. Oh God, it sounds like the maddest company ever. Um, did you did you ever end up getting paid from any of it? Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they paid me for a while. Although um, I remember one of my checks, I had to uh, go to the bank uh, with it immediately because I knew I wasn't going to get paid because the bank account's almost empty. You know, so I went to the the bank and. There was Eugene <laughs> in the long in front of me, <laughs> waiting for his paycheck to be paid. 
And he mysteriously disappeared. And people have asked me about him over the years. It's like, what happened to this guy? And it's like, I don't, I have no idea, you know, and there's like no internet history of him. Although he was apparently a famous um, adult photographer at one point. There's some evidence of him on the internet, but I mean, very little. And that's extremely unusual for any person. So, mm. you know, um, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he was killed. We're talking about it. I mean, that the, the, the other people in the company we're talking about. I mean, that's how crazy it got. I mean, at one yeah. point, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and the attorney for the company pulled up next to me, just a r- completely random scenario. And he was just like, I'm so wasted on Quayla's dude. Can I hang? Can I just crash out your pad? That's literally what he said to me. <laughs> <Get turning. laughs> and, and I was like, no, I, I got something I had to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's crazy. So that, that, um, and that was the attorney for the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's oh wow. Well it sounds a bit Wolf of Wall Street. So um after that you uh, ended up with Western technology. Um was it good to get out of the adult niche and kind of, you know, get on with programming and stuff, like actually getting games out? Yeah. Um well unfortunately I didn't. Um that was like when the I you know did this I figured out a way to program the Atari 2600 is the Atari 2600 had a very unusual um, uh, graphic system. Uh, it basically had no graphics memory. Mm. So you would have to just, you know, in real time, draw each line on the screen mm. would be the best way to put it. Uh, well, there was a buffer. There was a small buffer uh, that allowed you to, um, write the bits, you know, whatever color you wanted for every pixel in to every, for, for that line of the screen in real time. So it had to be that fast. You had to, you know, there was the program would have to be incredibly fast. You could waste no computer cycles. Yeah. Um, and, um, the only time that you could waste computer cycles was in the vertical retrace uh, before it uh, redrew the entire screen. And there was, you know, I don't know, what would that be? Probably a fifth of the time uh, to do all your computation for, you know, you know whatever, whatever was happening in the game. Mm-hmm. So um, whether that be, you know, uh, you know, figuring out, what you were going to do next, um, setting up all the sound, uh, setting up all the graphics, et cetera, for what you were going to draw next. And so basically there was no way to do anything. It was like 3D. And I figured out a way to do 3D on the 2600. And it was crude 3D. But <laughs> it was for a game that we, we were actually doing for Atari that was um, for the Andro-Man yeah, that was one of the uh, it, brains on board kind of uh, robots, wasn't it? It was a uh, was it Nolan Bushnell who started uh, like an offshoot or was working with them? And uh, well, Nolan Bushnell that, did the Atari Twenty Six Hundred to begin with. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I remember there was um, a lot of kind of different types of bots, and Andro Andro Man was one of them. They were like educational 
personal robots. Um, I've, I've never seen one in action. How did they actually work? Well, they were never released to the public. They, no game was released with, I believe, no game was released, maybe one uh, with the Androbot. Uh, basically, the way it was supposed to work was that you would have a, a fold-out playboard, like a, you know, kind of like a... Like a laminate, like a plastic sheet, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And um, there were uh, certain spots on the sheet that the, um, with a barcode, literally, that the uh, robot would roll over. And as soon as it rolled over it, then it would know where the robot was on the sheet. And using that, it would interface with the video on the screen to, you know, let you know where you were on the map and it would do something depending on the game. One game was a clue game, like, you know, the mystery game clue. Mm. One of my friends at the the company did, and uh, he actually completed that one. Uh, I did Andro man on the moon where Andro, yeah, I think I called him Andro man, Andro bot. Um, uh, and he was, uh, exploring the moon. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, so basically what happened was every time you went over a, a different barcode, it would bring up a different graphic on the screen and you would go into a, a different screen experience and then you play a game on the screen and yeah. then you go to a different you know spot and scan a different barcode. And then that would, you know, basically go into a different game. And so one of them was 3D where you'd go like down this tunnel and you'd be shooting at things flying at you. And another one... It's basically kind of a, a ripoff of um, uh, a video game that was in um, arcades at that point where you're shooting at uh, towers. Mm. Um, it, it was um, very, it was Star Wars, basically. Yeah. So we did that, and that looked 3D too. So that was that was a game that I worked on for them. But it was never released because it's 2600, it, you know, exploded with the uh, imploded, I should say. With the ET game, you know, mm. which was buried in the desert in Southern California, Arizona. I'm sure you know about that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've, had, um, we've had the developer, uh, Howard Scott Walshaw, on actually. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was really interesting to hear about that. Like with the video games crash. You say dug him up. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Atari Game Over was the uh, documentary. Right. Um, it was a I, w- I was wondering um, uh, how, how that affected things then for you personally, like the video games crash. Um, let's see. Well, I got out of doing video games. Uh, <laughs> and our company, Western Technologies, went into, gee, would I be giving away something that's top secret? We could always ever, have ever heard of, Okay. Ever heard of a Sona Boy? <laughs> a what? A Sona? A so- Sona Boy. Sona Boy. No. Boy. It was a basically they put him in the um, North Atlantic, yeah, and around um, around the Arctic, and they would were supposed to uh, pick up signals from Soviet subs. Oh, okay. Going for that. The cool thing about it was it was a one bit computer mm. that was on the Sonoboy, which you know basically floated and you know picked up sounds. And I'm sorry. A four-bit computer. I shouldn't have said one bit. Four-bit. That was what was unusual about it because the only four-bit computer I think ever existed. And um, it had um, an instruction that you could send to it 
that would like, you know, basically it had some output ports, you know, that for output that you could control. And, you know, because it was a, it was a computer as well as a, um, it was a computer chip that also had outputs. Let me put it that way. Yeah. And um, one of the um, output bits, pins, pins, I should call them, would destroy the device. <laughs> so I had to uh, write a computer program that, you know, after it did all this stuff, picking up all the signals from the device would destroy the device by <laughs> putting the death like, code basically to this one like a one pin. mission impossible basically uh you know yeah. in mission impossible they have this tape will self-destruct i guess it was that kind of thing exactly <laughs> sorry i didn't put it that way but <laughs> <laughs> so you know so for, at this point you've gone from making adult games for the atari to making robots for the atari to making essentially computers in in buoyancy boys and then you moved to malibu interactive how 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 did that work how did you get your work there um well actually malibu interactive started out as an adult company <laughs> oh wow <laughs> don't they, all? <laughs> they, they, they had they, they had a whole line of um comic books and a lot of them were adult comic books mm-hmm. and that's how they got all their money to begin with and they decided to get into video games because of course at that point everybody wanted to get into video games but that uh, lasted for a pretty short period because they, they basically ran out of money and um that was kind of a short career there uh, i don't know six months something like that um didn't uh really work on any games were ever released there you know that's you know a very common thing in the video game industry as you know <laughs> games or at least at that point, games that were never released, you know, because everybody yeah. wanted to get into it. It was like, you know, it's like uh, making a ton of money. You got to get into it, you know? Yeah. Basically, at that point, I was trying to, you know, develop my own software to try to uh, create my own company, which I eventually did. Mm. And so, oh, uh, oh, we did a Battletech game. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, um, I was going to ask about Battletech. Like, um, it seemed oh, sorry, quite so interesting. Years ago. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like quite an interesting uh, game. It was a bit like um, uh, one of the Strike games, like, you know, Desert Strike. Exactly. And, uh, it was Desert it, Strike Revisited. <laughs> with a Mac, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was exactly what they said. It's like, Desert Strike is a really cool game. And it was. I mean, it, you know, just was, um, had some excellent strategy elements to it, you know. Um, and, um, you know, it, every game is a reinvention of another game, you know, so. Mm. I uh, I wouldn't say they ripped it off. Just you know, kind of uh, were inspired by it. Yeah, had some great graphics works, some uh, great uh, artists there, and uh, a very interesting guy worked on it with me, uh, Mick West. I don't know if you ever talked to him. Uh, no, we haven't actually. Well, you no, should. He's a Brit. Uh, he lives in the U.S., but um, he's the world's expert on UFO debunking and other debunking issues. Uh, especially jet contrails just okay. type in jet contrails mick west and you'll find out all about him and he was a uh, neversoft as well i'm, I'm just yeah yeah, yeah yeah he he made millions at neversoft because what happened was neversoft was lucky enough to do the spider-man game after mm. and i will sound a bit better bitter now because my company was going on at the same time as theirs 
my company, Digital Dialect. And we had a superior 3D engine. However, basically after they completely blew one game <laughs> for Sony, they were able to get the contract to um, use the, that same engine they developed for the, the, the previous game to do Spider-Man. And nobody thought Spider-Man was going to be anything. Mm. You know, as a in, in the media, the film world, yeah. <laughs> they didn't think Spider-Man was going to do anything. But it did. <laughs> so as a result, their game did really well. Yeah. And uh, they just kind of just um, happened to be in the right place at the right time. And they made millions off of it. And as a result, became darlings of Sony and uh, went on to do a bunch of other Spider-Man 2, 3, 4, and um, a number of other games. And uh, he became a multimillionaire. And so as a result, Nick West is now the world's expert on jet contrails. Yeah, they did uh, the Tony Hawk's games as well, didn't they? Which were Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, which were like the biggest games in the world at the time. Oh. So, uh, yeah, it did all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did very well, yes. So um, let, let's talk about your company then. So, you know, the industry was changing. Obviously, CD-ROMs and the PlayStation was coming. This was, you know, the, the next thing. What what kind of games are you guys working on? Were you work, you got Battle Arena Attrition in here? Yeah, that, well, that was um, a conversion from the PS1 to the PS uh, to the PC. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, we kind of got known for doing conversions. Mm. And that was primarily what we did for many years. Although, you know, I wrote many video game treatments, took them around to many video game producers, all with NDAs. And um, some of them were ripped off, mm. I would say. Uh, I don't know. I, well, like you said, <laughs> <laughs> you don't release anything to uh, the legal world um so um i remember uh doing a bunch of world war ii games because i'm kind of a world war ii buff and i was like behind enemy lines so you do this 3d game and we had a 3d engine we we actually had the best oh let me just back up a little bit first we did like um first um a game for um time war interactive which yeah. was a uh, 3D game that was kind of like a James Bond type game uh, where you would, you know, basically be a secret agent. We recreated the entirety of Venice, Italy, mm. you know, using maps, etc. cetera. And um, there was one point in the game where you would like literally go on this like high speed race through <laughs> Venice, Italy. And I mean, for the time, I mean, on a PC, I mean, it was, pretty cutting edge but you know the the company went out of business basically you know they uh, decided to uh cut that whole division we aren't going to do video games because it, it, you know it was all all a result of you know the uh, collapse of 2600 and then you know pc games came in and then they kind of just didn't do too well um some of them did some of them didn't you know but they decided they didn't want to do that be in that mm. business they wanted to be into uh multimedia you know which that was basically the idea that uh people would want to buy cd roms and put them in their computers and basically have uh audio and video experience of uh encyclopedia 
type of thing about you know any subject you'd want. Uh, but then the internet <laughs> suddenly arrived, mm. and internet browsers, and all of a sudden, all the information you'd ever want in the world was on the internet. And so there was no reason to have those. So that was a, a brief phase that our company went through also. But um, I don't know. So at any rate, so we, you know, did that, uh, you know, did a video game for them. And so we had a 3D engine as a bottom line that was, um, you know, pretty much cutting edge. I remember literally, and here's an interesting thing. You might want to not cut this out. Um, there was, uh, at that point, uh, they would have meetups for people who were doing video games in Los Angeles. And I went to one of them with our video game that had the entire drive your boat, your high speed boat through Venice, <laughs> through mm. the canals. And everybody was like, oh my God, look at that. And everybody was like congregating around our computer. And right next to us were the, uh, was the company, you'll know the name of the company, but Warcraft. I won't say the name. It was doing Warcraft at that point. Yeah. And, um, you know, with a bunch of little goblins running around the screen in 2D. Yeah. Right next to us. And nobody looked at their screen. <laughs> <laughs> and then well, years I, later, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, uh, Battle Arena to Shindon, like, really push those uh, polygonal characters and stuff. And it was still MS-DOS. So did that, like, require a... A graphics card and you know a, a bit of grunt on your machine to get it running. Well, uh, hmm. I, I, I don't know exactly what you're asking. Do you mean uh, there require a lot on the user's machine? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, like you know, with with the extra adaption of graphics cards and people start buying them, um, uh, d did that make like developing these three uh, D titles and running this three D engine easier? Oh yeah, well. Yeah, it certainly made it easier. I mean, that they wouldn't have happened if, you know, those cards hadn't been around. And everything was going 3D at that point because we had this 3D engine. Yeah, that made it easy. And we did, you know, push as many polygons as we could. But, you know, it was, um, I, I believe there were um, several um, different levels that you could adjust the game to, depending on your uh, the graphics capabilities of your um, computer you know, one that would run just like on a regular computer and a regular PC and one that would run on one with like a NVIDIA card or something like that. I guess that's always the difference with a PC that you have to kind of hit all of the consumers that have all the different setups and uh, exactly. be able to run it in low settings as well as high. Yeah, Always a pain in the ass. And, you know, that, of course, in addition to ability performance of, the graphics on the computer you also have to deal with you know crashes on various computers you know because the, the testing requirements were like very intensive and they always have been on the pc and they still are i mean there's i mean you can see people making complaints all the time on microsoft forums etc about their microsoft games Cra I crashed on my computer you know <laughs> you know it's, it happens all the time and we we did uh we did Metal Gear Solid, we uh, did in for Microsoft, and they had an incredible testing team. Mm. You know, they were running like I don't know, four hundred computers, 
you know, oh, wow. running, people running on uh, computers every day, you know, mm. on, you know, with every variety of configuration, you know, yeah. every variety yeah. of graphics card, you know, and there were so many graphics cards at that point. Mm. It was just, it was ridiculous. It's like, you know, well, it crashed on this uh, multivision, uh, multivision out of the picture at that point, I forget, uh, <laughs> card. So there would be those 400 computers running and then a couple of them would come to you and say it crashed on on this setup and it crashed on that setup. But then I guess you and your team would then have to work out to stop that crash from happening just in case if a consumer has that setup, I'm guessing. Exactly. And so what we had to do at one point was send one of our programmers over there to um, work on it with them, you know, in their test lab on the actual computers. You know, he was the guy who wrote a lot of the code. Malkia, he was this Bulgarian guy, and he ended up getting hired away from me by Microsoft. Because oh, wow. he was <laughs> against his NDA, but you know who am I against Microsoft? Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that allegedly. So, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> so, speaking of all these different developers and Microsoft and stuff, what was it like working with all these big different companies? You know, PlayStation. Was there really strict requirements for the ports and what you guys were working on? Strict requirements? Um, nah, I wouldn't say so. I mean, it was, you know, well, if you run those games today, they won't run on a computer. Unfortunately, they changed DirectX. We always use DirectX, the Microsoft product, and uh, we used it in the proper way, and uh, they won't run anymore. You know, so uh, you, you have to get a vintage computer if you want to run any, any of our games. So um, Abe's Odyssey Oddworld was one of the biggest selling games for the PS1 at the time. Was there a lot of requirements to match the PS1 version when porting that? The people at Oddworld were very easy to work with, and they gave us great access to all their content. So it was very easy to um, do the conversion, and we were able to talk to their programmers, etc. You know, so you know, basically, it was all written in C programming language so you know we just had to convert the c so that it would run on the pc not too much of a problem i mean the graphics pipeline there was you know some issues with that you know just um converting into the, the format that we needed to use on the pc but it was it was pretty easy you know it, it was a pretty smooth experience um and you know the game was very well written the programmers did a good job on it so uh, it, it ran very well on the PC. So I wouldn't say there were any problems. We did have to do a number of foreign versions uh, in different languages. Mm. And here's the uh, the fun fact that when we uh, did the Japanese version, they realized at Oddworld that they had to completely redo all the graphics on Abe because he had four fingers. And four fingers are considered naughty. How would yeah. you put it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, because of the Yakuza. Because they chop people's pinkies off in the Yakuza. <laughs> yeah. So they had to make him have three fingers. So they had to redo all the graphics. And it took a, like two weeks running all that stuff through the Silicon graphics machines that they had to you know redo every image of Abe with three fingers. Oh, wow. <laughs> So um, you mentioned, obviously, that you ported the Metal Gear Solid port from PlayStation to PC. 
Um, and obviously, such a huge game, probably the biggest game in the world around 99, 2000 when it came out. What what was that like? And was there a lot of pressure there? You know, you mentioned there was the 400 PCs testing the game and stuff. What, what was the experience like? The fun fact about that was um, we showed it at E3 because uh, Microsoft was actually behind it, although it was actually released by um, Konami. Mm-hmm. That was the name that was stamped on it. Yeah. On the outside the box. And not the name of our company, although it was in the contract that we had with Microsoft that our name had to be on the package. And they didn't do it. But they didn't do it. And, you know, what am I going to sue Microsoft? <laughs> but it was, you know, if you watch the game, you know, it's it's in the credits. Um, yeah. But um, so that was okay with me, I guess. But the fun fact was that um, in the original Metal Gear Solid game on the PS1, Solid Snake, the main character, and as well as all the other characters in the game, had basically um, black holes for their eyes. Yeah. And so it's like, well, when you do it on the PC, you know, you're going to have much higher resolution. So, you know, do proper faces. So I had my artists do, you know, really nice looking faces for them. And, you know, great, you know, nothing offensive about them. And we showed them off at, uh, it was, uh, I forget if that was after the CES or, I think it was E3 at that point. It was E3 at that point. And it was shown there. And, um, oh, God, I'm sure what his name Kojima, I think. Hideo Kojima. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, he saw it and he was just like in rage. <laughs> 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 this looks too good. This is going to make our game look bad. <laughs> you must make their eyes. <laughs> so we had to basically reduce the resolution of um, you know all the faces. The rest of the game, we were able to keep it high res, but but the faces had to have uh, blurred eyes, even though there was no reason for it. They could have looked like proper people's faces. That's, that's, <clears throat> it's interesting as well because of in the Kodak, the parts of the game when they're talking, you know, on their headsets and stuff, oh, yeah. they, they have you know animated. There's you know there's an animation to them like an anime style. So I would imagine your artists would have based them on those characters, what they look like in that situation. So maybe we didn't use the original graphics from that. We didn't change them. Yeah. So maybe he was upset because you made it look better than his version. Not that part. No, not that part. Just the, in the game, in the game. Yeah. Yeah. When you, what- you know, you'd see, you'd see close-ups of them. And actually, here's another fun fact. There was actually a porno scene. In. It was an Easter egg. You had to type in some, uh, I, I don't remember what the, code was but where a solid snake got naked with the uh female character in the game oh really in a locker room (laughs) and was that in the ps that was hidden in the ps1 version was it i i believe it was yes because i know our version (laughs) (laughs) the original source code that we were working from oh wow because i know there's uh if you're quick enough you can catch her in her pants and stuff like that like looking at her through the vents if you do a particular part in the game quick enough she won't get changed quick enough out of like the, the <laughs> uniform she's in. So yeah, maybe it's a longer version of that that we didn't get to see. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. One thing I was wondering as well was there um, was there an effect of like piracy on the PC sales at all? And uh, were, were many of the games pirated? Well, I would assume so. Yeah, I mean, like any 
PC game even today. I mean, I, I went to Russia once and remember walking through the subways, stations, and, you know, here was uh, the latest game that was out on the PC. I won't say which. <laughs> and it was selling for, you know, $2 or something. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, that, that's long been a problem around the world. But um, I don't know how it affected the sales, any games I worked on. Uh, yeah. I doubt I doubt they would have because, you know, they were games that were just done for the PC. And none of them had very, you know, high sales. I'd say that the Metal Gear Solid was probably the, the highest selling one. Yeah. Except for, um, oh, gee, I'm trying to think of one. Well, certainly not the original one we did, Adrenix. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we never the managed to. <laughs> yeah. How, how was Adrenix? What was that like? Because we, we, uh, we never managed to get that one in there. What was that like? Oh, a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it was just a game where you uh, had complete 360-degree uh, uh, movement in the game. And, yeah, uh, and you like flew like a spacecraft, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I had a whole uh, uh, treatment I wrote for it. It was originally called Freelancer. And then uh, we uh, worked with uh, Playmates <laughs> Interactive on that one. Oddly named company. Um, I think they were from Taiwan. <laughs> Basically, they assigned a producer to the game, and he completely rewrote the game mm. and and made it a game based around this drug, Adrenix. Yeah, and uh, that wasn't what the original concept of the game was. It was just you know we wanted to do a game that uh, you know had that kind of um, freedom of movement because um, that was um, something that was. In very few games at that point. That was around the time of, um, uh, it was past Wolfenstein. What's the next level after that? I want to say Quake, but it wasn't. Doom? Doom, yeah, Doom. That was when Doom level games were around. But, you know, Doom didn't have, you know, full 360 degree movement. You know, it was all, you know, you just had to walk around in a kind of semi 2D world where yeah. some 3D elements. <laughs> But this was like complete 3D movement, you know. So we did have an engine, what we call Cancun, that we actually uh, sold to some other companies that developed games with it. But unfortunately, none of those games were ever made it to the, were ever um, sold to publishers or were released by publishers, I should say. Um, but were used by a variety of companies around the world uh, because we had very um, low license fees. So, yeah, with that game, um, the, the best part of the game is the uh, cut scene at the beginning. You can, you, you can look it up on the internet. It's friggin' hilarious. Look up Adrenix cut scene. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> I'll have to look it up after because it's out of all the games we spoke about, it's the only one I've not played. <laughs> Obviously, other than the, uh, the, the adult ones for the 2600. Um, um, so, was there any titles you would have loved to have port that you, you never got? got the uh, contract on or anything you just missed out on, you know, like the Spider-Man game, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I definitely wanted to move out of the, the, the whole arena of porting games. You know, that's why I brought up a bunch of treatments. And, uh, <sighs> well, basically I went around to every video game company at one point and I had treatments for, you know, a variety of games. Um, one of my main ones was a World War II game called Behind Enemy Lines. Mm. And at that point, I remember the exact year. It was around the two, around 2000. And every game company gave me the same line. Nobody's interested in World War II games. Kids now 
have no interest in that. They don't know what World War II is. It's kind of like the way people feel about World War One now. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe, maybe before that movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they um, just all passed on it, you know, but I had them all sign, um, you know, non-disclosure agreements. And uh, then Saving Private Ryan came out. Yeah. All of a sudden, every game was a World War II game. <laughs> Medal of Honor, yeah. And one of them was called Commandos Behind Enemy Lines. And that was, I won't say which company, but was one of the companies that I have a non-disclosure agreement with that they signed. Mm. But they can say, you know, hey, we were working on this game before it, you know. So, well, but, uh, but, but I was the originator of the... World War Two games. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it sounds like you had a tough, tough time with some, with uh, people. How do I word it? Not getting to the finishing line first, but just bigger companies coming up with an idea that you've already worked on or something you've already started to put out. Uh, sounds tough. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to say I was ahead of my time, but mm. you know, we had an engine that was ahead of our time, and you know, some games that concepts that were ahead of their time ufo games certainly and one of those too well, there was a ton of those nobody wanted to do those um but uh yeah wrong place wrong time <laughs> didn't do the spider-man well, game <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm not the uh, world's expert on uh jet contra <laughs> well Michael it's been awesome to chat to you and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show well thank you too it was a pleasure